It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, everyone. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you, as always. By the way, you can uh, get us on the Internet. Uh, what is it? LarryKudlowShow.com. You can live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. And uh, during the week, the name of the show is Kudlow on Fox Business Network, FBN, Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Please listen in. You'll love it. Great stuff. And if you can't get us at 4, I mean, something happens to you, just uh, text your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR. Not that hard. Even I can do it and have done it. So I'm a little spacey. We just got in uh, from California last night. And it was a wonderful trip uh, at the Reagan Library underneath that uh, beautiful Air Force One setting. I don't know if you've ever seen it. If you haven't seen it, you ought to see it. It's uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, The Air Force One Pavilion, which is right next to the library. And it's quite a scene. And um, it was a wonderful night for me personally. And it was just a great night in general. Uh, I received, I was honored by getting the William F. Buckley Prize for Leadership in Political Thought. Uh, So many great friends were there. I think they had about 400 people. It was just the most beautiful thing. Um, I was uh, honored, and I want to talk about it just a little bit. I want to talk about it in several ways. Uh, First of all, I want to talk about William F. Buckley, Bill Buckley, who was the Founder and, of course, long, long time editor of National Review magazine, uh, the nation's leading conservative uh, weekly magazine. Bill founded it in the 1950s. And, of course, you probably saw him and remember him for so many years uh, on his program, Firing Line, which was uh, tremendous. He had guests, you know, he had liberal guests, conservative guests, debates. I did it several times myself. Anyway, it was a great honor for me to get the William F. Buckley Prize. Great honor. Uh, Humbled by it. And I talked a bit about Bill. You know, many ways he was the father of modern conservatism after World War II and after all those years of left-wing liberal Keynesian statist, central planning under FDR and Harry Truman, uh, and even, I hate to say it, but uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And, uh, you know, Bill's, one of his mottos for the magazine National Review is, we will stand to thwart history and yell stop, and yell stop. And there's a lesson there. You know, he was... Of course, he was a supply-sider. He was a tax-cutter. He believed in limited government. He was a fierce anti-communist. Fierce anti-communist. He was a a great friend of um, Ronald Reagan. In fact, Bill Buckley's support for Ronald Reagan down through the years 
got Reagan through as governor of California and later as president. I, I, I was on the staff. I was an editor, senior editor, economics editor at National Review for a short period of time in the uh, early mid-90s. And, uh, of course, I worked for Ronald Reagan in his uh, budget office uh, in his first term. And then later on, I went back to Wall Street and became, later on, became a broadcaster all those years on CNBC. And now I'm having the time of my life on Fox Business and also Fox News, the time of my life. And then I wound up working for President Trump as his National Economic Council. Advisor, But Bill Buckley, you know, Bill Buckley has taught us important lessons. Limited government, as I said, the importance of cutting taxes, deregulation. Uh, Bill Buckley was a friend of Milton Friedman's. Bill Buckley was a friend of Friedrich Hayek's. Bill Buckley was a first and foremost a believer in freedom. Freedom. You know, the left never talks about freedom, but conservatives talk about freedom. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Freedom. That was a Bill Buckley mainstay. That was the heart of it. That was the center of it. And those are lessons that are so important today as we watch the left, the progressives, the socialists in the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress once again try to take over this country with all their crazy ideas about central planning and government control of the economy and limiting free speech, you know, all this collusion between the White House and uh, Facebook and Twitter, what we can't say, what we cannot say, offices of disinformation, Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. And the socialist experiment has failed so dismally. I mean, look, in in, in just over a year, Biden has taken an economy that was prosperous and booming, V-shaped recovery coming out of the COVID pandemic, price stability, no inflation, basically, And in 12, 15 months, with all of his massive spending and taxing and regulating and virtually stopping fossil fuel production, jacking up prices, electricity, groceries. You know, we just got a report on Friday, yesterday, that the inflation continues to rise. Core embedded inflation continues to rise. This is what the Biden's done. They turned a non-inflationary boom into a high-inflation bust recession in a year, and it's still going on. I mean, just in this year alone, they've spent $1.5 trillion. Prior to that, last year, they did that crazy bill in March of 21, which was uh, two, $2 trillion, $1.9 trillion. So they're not stopping. They won't stop. And uh, William F. Buckley fought hard against government central planning. And, of course, he fought hard against 
Soviet communism and Chinese communism and North Korean communism and so forth. But I want to go beyond that. A few things that I also said, and uh, I'm indebted to my old pal, Catherine Jean Lopez from National Review, who wrote a beautiful, really a beautiful story about Thursday night's uh, award dinner at the Reagan Library, the Buckley Award Dinner. It's called God and Man at the Reagan Library. I think she wrote it better than I said it, but she was writing about what I said. And uh, I, I, I've loved uh, Catherine Lopez for many years. So let me just read. About Buckley, I cherish those memories. I miss Bill Buckley. I miss him for his brilliance. I miss him for his conservative principles. I miss him for how he taught us how to be civil in discussions, civility in arguments with the other side. I mean, you can have a conversation and you can disagree politely and respectfully with someone. It's called civility. It's a lost art. You can use humor. Oftentimes you can use self-deprecating humor. But the point is, as you argue for freedom, as you argue against socialism, as you argue for free markets, as you argue for free enterprise, you can do it without trashing the other side, without killing the other side, without slaughtering them, without insulting them. Civility, keeping our principles, keeping the principles espoused starting in the 1950s by William F. Buckley, including his fabulous book, God and Man at Yale. In fact, Catherine Lopez called this piece God and Man at the Reagan Library, and she was writing about me, and I'm indebted for this. I'm indebted. I'm humbled by this. I mean, this is a big deal for me because I adored and loved Bill Buckley. And I've always tried myself to emulate what Bill taught me about civil discourse. Not personal, not insulting, but be respectful, but, but stand, stand by your arguments. Make the best arguments based on the best factoids. It's a lost art. Buckley showed us how to do it. Self-deprecating humor, you know? It works. And I learned that from him. And I am perfect. God knows we're all sinners. You do live TV and live radio all these years I've been doing this. You're going to miss a few, and there's a few I'd like to have back. But on the whole, I've tried to emulate Bill Buckley. And um, last night I talked about Catholicism. Bill Buckley was a was a high church Catholic, a religious man. He was a religious man. And um, actually, when I was at National Review, uh, a friend of mine, Sim Johnson, wonderful person, was actually teaching me Catholic catechisms. This was, uh, at that time, folks, I'm, I'm going to go longer here, so we'll still live with it, but um, I was talking to my producer. 
But at that time, it was one of the worst times in my life, maybe the worst time in my life. I was suffering uh, from alcohol and drug addiction. It was getting worse. I was trying to pull out, and I was looking for help. And I gradually came to faith. And Bill was a great supporter of that. Bill was obviously a strong, famous, as I say, high church Catholic. Bill Buckley wanted the Mass to be in Latin. It used to be in Latin. I don't speak Latin. But that was, I converted to Catholicism over 25 years ago. I've been sober uh, 27 years for what that's worth. To me, it's worth a lot. But with respect to Bill, one of the things that I learned, and I hope others who followed him learn, that religion, whatever religion, religion should be a part of our society and our life. And the Judeo-Christian heritage is part of really what we sometimes called the American idea. And the left today, the left, the progressives, the socialists, want to take religion out of our lives. And in doing so, they want to take the family out of our lives. Religion, family, these are the basic units of our society, of our country, of our freedom. And if we ever allow that to happen, I believe it will be the end of us. It will be the end of us. And this is something that uh, William F. Buckley talked about quite a lot. Taking religion out of the schools taking parents out of the schools, teaching crazy stuff about gender and, and sex and racism and rewriting American history and basic values. Look, basic good values come from religion. They come from the Bible. And it's part of the socialist quest to make the government God. In this country, our free country called America, we get our power and our rights and our freedom from God. That was our natural rights. And then the government works for us. We don't, the government doesn't run the country. We don't work for the government We get our independence and our freedom from the Lord. That is our natural right. That is in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty. We are endowed by our Creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The socialists and the left want to break that up. They want to destroy that, and they cannot. And Bill Buckley was such a leader. He was so important, and he taught me that too. And I talked about that too two nights ago at the Buckley Awards dinner at the Reagan Library. Of course, I'm an economic supply-sider. Of course, I believe in limited government. 
Of course, we have to fight the communists around the world today, in China, in North Korea, in Venezuela, in Cuba, of course. And those were Bill Buckley lessons. But he taught us about the importance of civility and humor in making our arguments. And he taught about the importance of God and religion in our schools, in our workplace, everywhere. And it had a tremendous impact on me. And I love the guy. And actually, after I left National Blue, we became even closer friends. He and Pat Buckley, my saintly wife, Judy, and I, dinners up in Connecticut with Bill in New York. He used to take my wife, my saintly wife, 35 years. He would take her over, put her on the bench, and play piano duets. Piano duets was fabulous. I mean, he was an unbelievable piano player, but but Judy held her own. He liked me, but he loved her. (laughs) We miss him. The whole country misses William F. Buckley. The whole country misses his important conservative principles. And we need to rally around them today and think about his style of civility and humor. Anyway... I'm sorry to bore you with all this. It was a great night last Thursday. I was very honored to receive this prize. The folks at Fox came over and bought a big table. The high command friends of mine. Gosh, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I'll tell you what. Today's a great day to be alive. I'm grateful for it. I love God. He has given me so many opportunities to serve presidents, magazines, radio, TV, Wall Street, my career. I'm sorry I've gone over. I'll stop finally. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. So... Forgive me for stumbling through that first long opening, but I wanted to get it off my chest and and celebrate uh, the Buckley Prize and what it means to me personally. Personally, it means a lot, as I, I hope I communicated. Anyway, look, I'm, you know, I'm the optimist, and we will beat this socialist surge. We're going to beat them. Uh, I believe we're going to whoop them big time in the elections in uh, November, which is only, what, five or six weeks away. And we're going to have the great Kelly and Conway on uh, in just a few moments after a quick break. She is the she's one of the smartest people I know. She's also the best, best political analyst I know by far. But I will say, I mean, I think the GOP, the polls are, are closing in all these tough races. Uh I think the commitment to America from Kevin McCarthy keying on the key points of inflation, recession, tax cuts, deregulation, open up the fossil spigots, crime, uh, immigration, the open borders. Um, I think he hit all the high spots. I think it's a very good document. It's like the contract with America many, what, 25 years ago with Newt Gingrich. But I think Kevin McCarthy's done a great job hitting all the high spots. And 
There was a big poll out last week, ABC, not this, ABC News, Washington Post, uh, using swing districts around the country uh, from Nate Silver's 538. The GOP has a 21-point lead in the swing districts. It's a remarkable poll, and it's not a conservative poll. It's a liberal poll. And so I think it looks pretty good, and I think we're going to roll the socialist tide back. I think Americans are sick and tired of ruining the economy And if it's broke, then let's fix it. If it is broke, let's fix it. And that's what's going to happen. So color me optimistic and standing on conservative principles as much as I can and following the class and dignity and style of the great William F. Buckley and my other boss, Ronald Reagan, and my principled boss, Donald Trump. Anyway, Kellyanne Conway, other side of the break. I'm Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we bring in my dear, dear friend and colleague in the Trump administration and um, smartest political analyst I know, one Kellyanne Conway, who has a book, a great book. It's called Here's the Deal, a memoir. You ought to read the book, folks, because you'll get a lot of good insights on the goods and the bads and someplace in between inside the Trump administration. And um, Kelly and my love, by the way, your uh, contribution to that video was wonderful. I mean, you were, you're so great. You're just so great. Thank you, Larry. And congratulations again <laughs> on quite an honor. I was at the Reagan library two weeks before you, so I consider myself your warm-up band. <laughs> but you were the main attraction and that's a richly deserved honor because you are the man who keeps us all smart and engaged on the fight for freedom, free markets, but really just freedom. That's what this is about. And I think that's what these midterms are about. Freedom. The, the Democrats want you to believe that it's freedom through January 6th and abortion and climate and one or two other things. But people out there are saying, excuse me, it's rising cost and rising crime and the inability to feel secure and safe, whether that is economically or physically. I have never seen a less complicated, more straightforward issue set in the decades you and I have been doing this. Mm. So people who are trying to complicate the issue set are doing so because they don't have a good answer and they don't have support among the public for their policies with respect to the economy and crime. And I'll throw one more in there, Larry, Mm. education. Mm -hmm. I think education is a big issue this time because for the first time in decades, the Republican and Democratic parties are tied just about tied on the question of which party do you trust more to handle education? We know what happened. The Republicans gained an advantage over the Democrats who used to beat us by 18, 20 points on education because screen time is school time, our kitchen islands as classrooms, these kids and the lost learning, the mental health challenges that they're reporting, Gen Z is reporting to pollsters, and they know which party, these parents know which party, It disagrees with parents' fundamental right to say where their children go to school and what is taught there. And they also know which party thought the kids should be off the campuses and out of the classrooms just a little too long. Larry, we need to take this opportunity to broaden and deepen the conversation and show the contrast between the parties with respect to charter schools, school choice, educational freedom, opportunity scholarships. I met Cory Booker decades ago Hmm. through a mutual friend at a school choice charter school event. He hasn't been for that in years. You can't find a single federal Democrat who's making joyful noises about getting these kids out of these failing schools and accessing a quality, affordable education worthy of their humanity and dignity. So I think Kevin McCarthy's commitment to America hits it. 
a nation that is strong, an economy that is strong, a nation that is safe, a future that is free, and a government that is accountable. Folks, check it out. This is a commitment to America, commitment to you, 500 words, two sides. Newt Gingrich and I were helping them with the messaging last week. I think they're doing a fantastic job because you run and you win exposing the other side and spent, they're spending trillions of dollars of money we don't have on things we don't need, looking the other way when criminals are running our cities and our suburbs now, Larry. And you also do it by having an affirmative, accessible, positive, doable set of principles and policies, and that's what they're trying to do with the commitment to America. I think, you know, I really agree. I had Kevin McCarthy on um, Monday, I guess. The thing was put out Friday. And I liked it very much. And just on this point, I mean, I would think the uh, parental involvement, the parental revolution in schools is like a national wave. We saw it with with Glenn Youngkin originally when he won for governor. I mean, Terry McAuliffe was a stand-in for Biden and the teachers union and the unions of these boards of education. And Youngkin took the side of the parents and swept And I would reckon that this is going to be a huge issue. You know, there may be underreporting a lot of poll. A lot of people are afraid to tell pollsters or whoever what they really believe in because they're afraid the FBI will come and take their cell phone away. But I think this is a big underlying issue, this parental movement in the schools and, uh, and for their children. Larry, I've got four teenagers, and they're all in school, obviously. Let me tell you something. We're not an parents are not an interest group. They're not some demographic uh, demographic uh, cohort to be sliced and diced and analyzed. We're parents. <laughs> We're, mm. It's impervious to politics. Mm. We're always parents. And you have so many more people running for school board now. Do you realize school board positions are the most elected position in our country at the local level? A lot of, a lot of things are appointed. The most elected position, you see people just jumping off the sidelines, Larry Cudlow, to run, to actually put their name on the ballot mm. and run for office. And look, I'm the first one to also tell our friends on the right, CRT, of course, that's a disaster. Critical race theory, this one's easy, though. We should teach our children to love America and each other, not to hate America and each other. But if you only talk about CRT and masking up kids, you're missing the opportunity to broaden and deepen the conversation and tap into what is continues to be the parents' rights movement. Now it's moving on to the curriculum. I think the Democrats and the liberals and the unions and their office holders who do their bidding and take their money and their endorsements, I think they've made a grievous error in not sort of, not sort of moving on, getting those kids back in the classroom on the campuses, Larry, and then just letting the kids learn again. All, what did they do? They went to the sex curriculum. Mm. They're, they're letting kids have surgeries without their parents knowing it's been reported. So they continue to make no sense to the average American. Last point on this. What Youngkin did a year ago was remarkable and revolutionary in New Jersey. Excuse me, in Virginia. And it should have been done in New Jersey. It should have really came close. But Youngkin also, um, he accepted Trump's endorsement. Mm. Trump did a, town, a, a big teletown hall for him telling his voters, please vote for Glenn Youngkin. He's, he's running on America first. But guess what Terry McAuliffe said? Terry McAuliffe ran on Trump and abortion. Does that sound familiar to you? That's what the Democrats are trying to do now. Mm -hmm. Trump and abortion. Terry McAuliffe tried that a year ago, and Youngkin's response was Virginia and education. Mm -hmm. And that's a good cautionary tale and good direction for, you know, for the public looking at this. The other thing is, you know, you're talking about the undercounting in polls. I, I think that's an issue. I think it's a little bit overstated by people trying to 
explain why some of their polls maybe aren't that good. But let me just say this. you got to ask people the questions to make them feel comfortable to give you the response. So if you word the questions in a way where people feel maybe the FBI is listening, maybe my kid won't get a seat in college or I'll get fired from my job, it's not worth it, I'm just going to take a pass, that's true. But I think more fundamental than the art part of these polls is the science part. These polls routinely undercount and underestimate the strength of the Trump-Pence voter. And if you look after 2016 and 2020, you had Democratic pollsters and media pollsters getting it wrong and saying, oopsies, sorry, we'll do better next time. Nobody loses their job over it. And they they got it wrong after 2016. They got it wrong after 2020 with two different presidential outcomes. And the reason I'm saying this to you is it happens in the Senate races as well, which is what we're about to see. I think a lot of our candidates are doing much better than the polls suggest mm. because of this undercounting science, science, the science part. Mm. They're undercounting independents who are aligned with Republican ideals. You know, just quickly, in 2020, Tom Tillis, North Carolina, Joni Ernst, Iowa, Susan Collins, Maine, Lindsey Graham, South Carolina, Steve Daines, Montana, all Republican U.S. senators, all were losing according to the average of polls outside of the margin of error. They were all losing. There was not a single public poll that showed Susan Collins winning. She won by nine points, Larry, not a squeaker. Mm. Lindsey Graham's opponent, Jamie Harrison, who now is Ronnie McDaniel's um, uh, uh, you know, opponent at the DNC. He runs the DNC. People probably don't even know who he is because he's not that active. He raised $112 million to run against Lindsey Graham. Lindsey beat him by 10 points. Mm. It wasn't close, but the polls had them tied. They had Joe Biden winning Florida. He lost. They had Joe Biden winning Wisconsin and Michigan by double digits. He barely won. They had uh, Joe Biden and Trump tied in Ohio and Iowa. Trump won each state by eight points. So these polls undercount. And it is true. Some people don't want to don't want to be in the polls. But you have to wait when you're a pollster, as I am. I don't know a billion things about many things. I know polls. You have to wait, W-A-I-T, to fill all those quotas. You don't wait them, W-E-I-G-H-T. You wait to fill those quotas. Then you get an, then you get an honest read from people. So it looks good. I mean, it looks great. I'm reading a couple things. <clears throat> I saw early last week this um, Washington Post ABC News poll with Nate Silver's 538 swing districts. I had swing districts across the country, and they said that the Republicans had a 21-point lead in the aggregate. Uh, in these swing districts, which was remarkable. I mean, that was a real eye-opener. Then I was reading um, National Review ran a story about uh, Trafalgar, uh, what is it, uh, Bob Cahaley, and he's saying this is going to be a, a big Republican sweep too. It's going to be um, much stronger. essentially what you are saying, by the by. But um, when you look into this and you weight it properly and you ask the right questions, it looks uh, like a Republican sweep. So my, I guess my question to you is, particularly in the Senate, um, what you think? I mean, they're all close right now. And to me, if a poll is close now, the GOP candidates sticking to these issues we've been talking about, the economy, inflation, education, open borders, um, crime, and so forth, the Republicans going to win. They're going to win last They're going few to weeks. win, Larry. They're going to win. And especially if those races are not just about the affirmative, doable, actionable message we are talking about here, but also making sure the Democratic nominees, many of whom are incumbents, like in Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, New Hampshire, open seats in Pennsylvania, obviously, and um, I'm sorry, yes, open seats we're defending in, in Pennsylvania, 
and Ohio, for example. Larry, that, those races have to be about the Democrats. You've got to make these right. Democratic candidates eat and own mm. all of the Biden-Harris failings and flailings. I know it's fun and easy to go after Biden and Harris for their um, inability to speak and inspire. I got it. His obvious lack of mental and physical acuity. But guess what? Art of politics is not to tell people what they can see, and everybody can see that. It's to show them what they can't see. Remind people, Joe Biden pulled us out of Afghanistan with no plan, no rationale, against the Mm. advice of all of his generals, left $85 billion of Mm. intelligence and equipment within the wingspan of China. What's the point of having the first female vice president of the United States if the women in Afghanistan are less free now because Mm. of her choices? And the list goes on and on. John Fetterman, the issue in Pennsylvania shouldn't be Oz. It should be John Fetterman. In Georgia, it should be Raphael Warnock. Mm. In Nevada, Adam Laxalt should be making, and I think he is, making an issue of that Democratic female senator with the three names and zero accomplishments. (laughs) You've got to make these Democrats (laughs) eat and own Biden's lack of approval. And, you know, they they don't want Biden with them. But guess what? They vote with him 98 percent of the time. That's it. Eat that every single time. Ninety five to 100 percent of the time. They all voted for Biden's mistakes, which, by the way, took a booming economy and turned it into a recession with high inflation in a year, Kellyanne, in a year. year. About the the same amount of time it takes to have a baby, folks. They turned turned this this economy the wrong way. Don't forget it. I love that. (laughs) Kellyanne, can you stick with us? I'll take a quick break. I want to talk a little bit about William F. Buckley and some of the themes there, too and why uh, conservatives need to stick together. We are talking to the great Kelly Ann Conway, my dear friend. Her book, by the way, is really worth a read. It's called Here's the Deal, a memoir. You ought to go out and get that, too. One click on Amazon. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with Kelly Ann Conway. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Kelly Ann Conway, who's former uh, Trump senior counselor, by the way, she was the campaign manager in the 2016 successful campaign. Just put that out there. And she uh, has a great book out called Here's the Deal, a memoir. And it is about uh, President Trump's term. She and I were colleagues, and we've been longtime friends. Kellyanne, I want to go back to just um, the William F. Buckley legacy. Um, one of the things that I talked about uh, in my remarks Thursday night was, you know, Bill Bill was a high Catholic. He was a high church Catholic. All right, you're a Catholic. I know I'm a Catholic convert. Uh, and Bill, in fact, wanted me to learn Latin so I could go to the, really the high church <laughs> mass. I said, I don't understand Latin. I'm still working on English. But the point is religion. I, and I, I'm not going to say, I'm just saying religion. Going to church, a temple, mosque, Religion is fundamental, what you learn from religious teachings and values is fundamental to American way of life and the freedom you talked about a few moments ago and to which I completely subscribe. The left hates God. It's right every place you look, the socialist manifestos, the progressives, they love government, but they hate God. And I think that's a Buckley legacy, and I think we need to hang on to that. I think we need to hang on to that, and I wanted to get your take on it. Larry, you're spot on, and uh, the great 
late Bill Buckley, and I'll say Pat Buckley, his wife, who was a force yes. of nature as well as you yes. know. Loved her. Um, Loved they were God-fearing, you know, faithful folks mm. who weren't afraid. He was not afraid to weave that into his political commentary and his policy debate. I think the other, and I'm going to talk about religion in a second, I think the other thing that's part of his enduring legacy is very similar to what is said about President Ronald Reagan. Oh, he's a great communicator. Guess what, folks? You can't be a great communicator unless you have something great to communicate. Right. And so they were always focused on the policies, Mm. not the politics, the principles, not the personalities. And we should all remember that because this was the land before time Mm -hmm. when there was no social media, there was no texting. You really had to think this through. Let me say something about religion. I've been going around this country quite a bit with the book and giving speeches. And one thing I'm quick to note, because I'm asked about it frequently, is what's going on with Hispanics in America? Mm. Are they really are they really migrating toward the Republican Party? Now, we have the wonderful Myra Flores, new congresswoman for the Rio Grande Valley area. She's the first Republican to hold that district in 100 years. She's Mexican-born. She's married to a Border Patrol agent. She's a good example of what I'm about to say. The, re- the Hispanics are aligning more with Republicans now certainly because of education, certainly because of economic upward mobility, certainly because of homeownership. But guess what? It's also because of religion. Mm. The Democratic Party is outwardly hostile to religiosity, to people who practice religion. And if that's not true, they can come in and come back to us and prove otherwise. They make fun of people clinging to you know their guns, their God, mm-hmm. their this or their religion. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama famously said when he was running for president, and they're always making fun of people for making the sign of the cross, blessing themselves before they eat in the red MAGA hats, the whole thing. I think it's costing them among Hispanic Americans, if not Asian Americans. Guess what? You and I are Catholic. You go to any suburb in this country on a Sunday, walk into a Catholic church, you will see pews filled with multi-generations of Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans. Yes. A lot of the whites are out jogging and having brunch. Yes. They're filling up those pews. They want to send their kids to the Catholic schools, and they see in the Democratic Party not just an abortion anyone, anytime, anywhere party, but one that never really embraces people for their faith. And it's the untold story, apart from the obvious education, economy, border security reasons, Hispanics are realigning with Republicans. Mm-hmm. I totally that's, – that's the way I see it. That was the, the thought. Look, I mean, you're right. Bill Buckley would weave that in to his uh, worldview. You're also right about being a great communicator. You've got to have uh, great principles to communicate. Reagan said that in his farewell speech. I thought that was very important. Uh, and Reagan and Buckley, um, you know, that's a very important nexus. But it is amazing to me, Kellyanne, the Democrats, they don't want religion anywhere. Uh, they don't want it in schools. They don't want it in universities. Uh, they don't want any, um, certainly in the public square, they, they want to tear down any religious symbols. I mean, this is a big thing getting worse. But if you go back and look at the history of progressives and socialists, anti-religion, anti-God is always part of it. It's just, it's always there. You read the history of these movements. And um, in America, we don't believe that. I mean, because it also, one last point, okay, families, okay? Family unit is the basic unit in a free America. But religion is part of that unit. I'm not going to say which is Jewish, Catholicism, Protestantism, whatever. I'm not making a pitch for a specific religion. But what I am saying is religious values help you 
determine the difference between right and wrong behavior. That's so crucial. And the Democrats hate that. Larry, it also means there's something bigger than you. Yes. Yes. Can we use a reminder of that these days? By the way, our founders agreed. This entire country was founded because we couldn't, people could not express and practice their religion Mm. the way they wanted to. They came here. And so our founders enshrined that in our uh, organizing documents. And may I remind everybody, the separation of church and state was meant to protect the church from the state, not the other way around. That's right. That's right. That's very subtle, Larry. When you have Democrats, they got the gavel, they're in the majority, Nancy Pelosi's the speaker. When they are passing a a rule to get over 200 Democrats voting to take mother, father, brother, sister out of the government document. Mm. What? I mean, right there, that's the priority. Does every mother, father, brother, sister in this country have what they need? Are they, are they are they homeless? Are they jobless? Are they are they are do they have food insecurity? We're worried about taking them out of the government documents. So if they're willing to take them out of the government documents, they're willing to take them out of the public square mm. and out of our schools and our homes too. And you know, last point on this: you made a very very essential um, observation, and it's a fact. This is America. We're a pluralistic society. So I like to say, if you're in the mosque, the synagogue. Mm. The church, the, the Catholic church or the, or, or the evangelical Christian church, it doesn't matter. What matters is the question for pollsters to ask is how central is religion to your everyday life choices? And for some, it's essential to their political choices as well. But you have so many pastors and priests afraid to say anything, mm. afraid to just quote scripture mm. that somebody may say you're, you're going to lose your funding, you'll be canceled. Etc. But folks, there are things bigger than us out there, and we need to remember that. And our founders, this this greatest democracy that's ever been had in the history of the world, was founded on religious freedom. It is our first freedom. The press things, freedom of the press is the first. Our freedom of religion was our first freedom, and that also includes people who don't believe. But you can't you can't have office holders and an entire political party um, hostile to that. And they're hostile that, you know what, Larry, it's subtle too. They won't even say thoughts and prayers anymore. Do you ever notice that? Mm-hmm. And I'll say thoughts. You have corporate America now saying our thoughts are with you. They used to say thoughts and prayers mm. and a couple of wokesters, mm. you know, uh, two of yeah. 50,000 employees probably said, you can't do that anymore. So they said, okay, we won't do that anymore. Guess what? Our kids could use more hugs, not fewer. Mm. We can all use more prayers, not less of it. Yes. We are endowed by our creator. Yes with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit uh, of happiness. One last point, um, Buckley, Buckley's style, I mean, there's only one, there will only be one William F. Buckley, but in our last minute here, he used humor, oftentimes self-deprecating humor, and civility in his arguments. And I think that, too, is a lost art, Kellyanne Conway. Absolutely. It's really about scoring points, playing gotcha, making fun of people, castigating and denigrating them. We have to have conversation. Yes. The, the issues are too great. So that's a great lesson. And that's why that's why everybody looks to you, Larry. You have <laughs> conversations and you're respectful. Thank you. Kellyanne Conway, I love you to death. You know that. And you are the smartest of the smartest folks. Go out and buy her book, please. Here's the deal. A memoir. It's great stuff. And she is the smartest. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, Robert O'Brien, another really smart guy, national security advisor, is going to tell us what in God's name is happening in Russia and the Ukraine. Another important event. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Much more to come. 
It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It is great to be with you. By the way, you can get us live streaming on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com, all around the country, all around the globe, throughout the solar system. And we bring in a great friend, Robert O'Brien, former national security advisor in the Trump administration. He's now the chairman of American Global Strategies. And if the Republican wins in 2024, hopefully, uh, Robert O'Brien will be the next secretary of state. Okay, that's my forecast. Better than interest rates. O'Brien, secretary of state. Anyway, Robert, uh, welcome. It was good to see you last night, uh, two nights ago. It was good to see Lo Marie. You guys both look great, so that was good. Thank you for the tweet. I appreciate it very much. And you got to help us now. Ukraine, Russia. I don't understand this. Russia's annexing the four regions of the Ukraine, but the Ukrainian counteroffensive is taking them back <laughs> one way or another. So then Putin is now saber rattling, nuclear saber rattling. Uh, can you give us an update? What is really going on over there? Well, well I, I will, Larry, but first I want to congratulate you on receiving the Buckley Award on Thursday night. Uh, it was well-deserved. There's no one who's been more since, – since Bill Buckley passed, unfortunately, uh, there's been no one who's supported free men and free markets uh, the way you have, and and Judy's backed you up. And your, your, your acceptance speech was just magic. So for the listeners, if you get a chance to go to National Review online and, and listen to Larry's speech, it was one of the great uh, – Great speeches of all time. So, so thank you, th- thank you, thank you for inviting us. It was an honor to be there, and congratulations on the big award. Look, what we've got going on in Russia right now is, uh, and, and Ukraine is is really interesting. The Ukrainians uh, have shown a fighting spirit and a boldness and a daring that we haven't seen. And you know, this is a war in which Ukraine has asked for U.S. troops. They've taken on the Russians themselves, and they've they've defeated them handily. Uh, and that, that defeat continues, and it's, it's going to become a very dangerous time as Putin realizes the extent of the, the damage to his forces in Ukraine. And, and there, there seems to be no end in sight to the offensive that the Ukrainians are, are prosecuting right now, especially in the northeast. Uh, they've just been circled today the town of uh, a village of uh, Lyman. It's a little bit bigger than those. It's about 20,000 people pre-war. And, and they're, they're moving on. So I think the Russians are going to continue to have a hard time. I think America and, and the West have done a great job. And you know, after having failed to deter Russia from invading Ukraine, which was a failure, uh, we've, we've partially made up for that by supplying the Ukrainians with the weapons and platforms they need to defeat the Russians. And so this is uh, – we're watching history in the making here. Robert, what – I don't – I mean, how can, uh, uh, how can Putin annex – these areas, these provinces, where um, the Ukrainians are taking them back. That's the part I don't understand. And, and the Red Army is, is done so badly. Even the Navy is in retreat uh, down in the southern part. I mean, there's a chance that the Ukrainians could retake Crimea at some point. I don't understand Putin's game. What does he think he's doing? Who does he think he's kidding? Well, he's not kidding his own people. You've seen hundreds of thousands of young people fleeing Russia, going to places like Kazakhstan and Georgia and Moldova, uh, not traditional uh, tourist spots, uh, <laughs> to avoid being conscripted and being sent into the meat grinder that's now become Ukraine uh, for the for the Russian army. So it's a he, he's not fooling anyone. 
Uh, the Ukrainians certainly have shown what they think of his annexation by their, their conduct. And I think the entire world is, is opposed to it, even China and Russia, which have been friendly to uh, – excuse me, China and, and India, which have been friendly to Russia uh, in the past, are not uh, adopting or, or recognizing the annexation. So I, I think Putin's in a, in a d- difficult spot. I mean, the one thing we want to be careful about is that you know, he doesn't use nuclear weapons. And so that, that's where our whole Ronald Reagan piece through strength comes into play. We've got to make sure he understands that that would be a red line. He's given a lot of red lines so far. It's time for us to give a red line. That's a, a Russian nuclear attack in Ukraine or anywhere else in the West would be, you know, into a devastating response and uh, just to the Russian economy alone, much less uh, what our military response might be. Do you think, I mean, I, this nuclear saber rattling, um, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, it, it, the reason I ask it like this is because it just seems. Uh, you know, the use of nuclear power uh, is so off the charts. It's so over the edge. It's almost unimaginable. And so the question is, what does he mean by that? And and then what should our response be to this? And have we done enough in our response? Well, I think, I think him rattling the nuclear saber shows a level of desperation that, that we haven't seen. I mean, he's, he's, the Russians have always talked about their nuclear arsenal because that's what makes them a great power. They, they don't have a lot other than their nukes to, uh, to put them in the great power club. Uh, but, but you don't use nukes. And uh, I think if, if Russia used a nuclear weapon, uh, A, Putin's own people might not, his own generals might not follow his orders. Because that, that really is letting the genie out of the bottle mm. that no one wants to, to see happen. Mm. Number two, I think Russia would be in, entirely decoupled from the world. I think China and its allies in, in Asia, even countries that are friendly to, to Russia, would immediately disavow them. They'd be entirely decoupled from the world market. Uh, no one would buy their oil or their fuel. Mm. Uh, it, it, it would really be the end of, of Russia. So. Uh, I, I think Putin's got to think long and hard about it, and, and I'm not sure his his own people would execute such an order. The other issue is what's it, what's he going to use the nukes on? I mean, is he going to just take out a, a, a major Ukrainian city to to demonstrate that he can kill that he's a mass murderer? I mean, there's no tactical advantage to using a nuclear weapon in this type of warfare. So, I think it's unlikely, but I think we also have to stand up to the bullying and let him know that that's that's that sort of talk is unacceptable and. Uh, and the, the entire world will, uh, will will condemn him. He'll be he'll be known in history as a war criminal, you know, in, in the same breath as uh, as Hitler and Stalin. Mm. Have we? Has the United States and NATO um, made this adequately clear what would happen if he if he used nuclear weapon? No, and, and look, part of the problem is, is we we've been weak on our sanctions with Russia. We, the the sanctions sound strong, but they're really half measures. So I mean, Russia's making money on this war because of the price of oil being so high. Putin's personally making money, and and Russia's making money on the war, notwithstanding how bad it's going for them militarily. And so we, you know, you you, you called for this, Larry, uh, and it shows I was on with you uh, mm-hmm. seven or eight months ago when you said we have to. The, the way to stop the Russians is to to fully sanction the Russian Federation Central Bank. And to stop them from doing any oil and gas transactions, and uh, and that that would probably, if they knew that was coming, that would probably have deterred the invasion. But we didn't do that because everyone's afraid of provoking Putin. Uh, I think we've gotten better on that front, but we need to we need to be stronger and, and show a like the Russians respect strength, and and that's what we need to show here. And we need to let them know that if there, there was an escalation, it would be the it would literally be the end of the economy in Russia. 
and, and we've got other other things up our sleeve to respond as well. You mentioned China uh, before, also India, but um, it, it reports suggest China is backing away from Putin and the Ukraine uh, invasion. Now, those two guys met, she uh, and Putin met, what, last week? Uh, what do you make of that? What came out of that? Well, look, I think the Chinese have been very disappointed by what they've seen in Ukraine because China wants to do the same thing in Taiwan. And they've seen the world rally to Ukraine. Uh, they've watched Finland and Sweden join NATO. I think they're concerned that if they invaded Taiwan now, that you might have a, a similar response in the, the Indo-Pacific region where the Quad, our, our relationship that you were very involved in, Larry, on the economic front mm. between India, Japan, Australia, and the U.S., could go from an economic uh, and diplomatic club to a, a military club, something like a, akin to a NATO in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, they've also seen the Russians, as she's watched how uh, the, the lack of capacity of the Russian army. And, uh, you know, up until now, the Russian army has been training the Chinese. They haven't, the Chinese haven't been involved in a war for many years since Vietnam in 1978. And I think they thought the Russians were the gold standard when it came to uh, military proficiency. And they're now saying, wait a minute, maybe all the things we learned from the Russians aren't going to help us. Mm. And so I think, I think Xi's getting very nervous about what he's seen in Crimea. And his unlimited partnership with Putin is starting to look a little more uh, mm. shaky than it was before. And then keep in mind, the last thing Larry is, and we've talked about this on your show as well, you know, Xi is, is vowed to, re, you know, to reverse the century of humiliation where uh, foreign powers took Chinese land and territory or territory that the Chinese believed was theirs. The Russians are sitting on thousands and thousands of miles of, of Chinese territory that they took from the, the uh, one-sided Treaty of Peking in, in 1860 and 1864. So uh, he may be looking at the Russians as being so weak now that uh, he can get some of that land back for, for China. So I, I don't think that partnership is as unlimited as they said it was back at the time of the Olympics. And one one last one, just in, for the last minute, Robert O'Brien. Um, Biden has said numerous times that if China invaded Taiwan, the U.S. would defend Taiwan. Uh, then what always happens is all these anonymous voices coming out of national security and elsewhere – Walk it back. They keep walking it back. Biden keeps saying it, and they keep walking it back. What, what is this all about? Well, so, so Larry, <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were much more senior than I was. I was just an intern in the Reagan administration. But you remember the, the old saying when we used to say, hey, let Reagan be yes, Reagan? Yes, uh, who, who Whoever thought we'd be saying on, on, the, on the right, uh, let Biden be Biden. But uh, we... we you know, look, it's it's embarrassing for the president. I mean, I think, you know, this is, you know, we don't see much of the old Scranton Joe, but uh, mm. I think this is the old Scranton Joe where he understands that uh, that we can't allow Taiwan to fall for, for economic reasons and, and our semiconductor industry, but also for geopolitical reasons. And every time he says that, his staff runs out and, and walks it back. So maybe maybe it's time for us all to start out, you know. You know, get a get a, a bumper sticker that says "Let Biden be Biden." I know, when it comes to this issue on foreign, foreign policy, I mean, but it's embarrassing. For, it's embarrassing for the president to have this happen. Exactly. I mean, of all the fruit salad statements that come out of Biden, this is the best thing he said in two years. Really, it's the only good thing he said. And his, his people keep walking it back, and you're. I mean, his instincts are good on this. For Christ's sakes, no, it's no, the you, first you, thing I've heard good from him in two years. <laughs> no, you, you, you and I are in total agreement on that one. And uh, 
And, and, and again, it, 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 this is the sort of thing that doesn't help us vis-a-vis our adversaries when he's trying to deter China. And, and I think what happened is he saw that it didn't work. Remember, and he talked about the, the, the Russians, if they just made a minor incursion into Ukraine, that would be okay. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of <laughs> right. thing that encouraged right. Putin. Right. I think he's trying, to fix, he's trying to fix that now, and he's trying to deter China. And that's something we should, you know, we should certainly applaud, but his staff certainly doesn't like it. Right. Can you imagine the Trump administration if, if you or I tried to do that? Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times went out to the sticks to the press and said, hey, what the president said, you know, that's not our policy. He would fire us. Gone, he would no, fire us. That right? wouldn't have gone over very well. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd be gone before you walked back into the lobby. <laughs> <laughs> no. You'd be walking out on West Exec with your boxes in your hands. And, uh, All yeah. right. Robert O'Brien, you are the best of the best. Um, we got to get you back on the TV show, too. Anyway, it was great seeing you this week. Looking forward to it. God bless you, Larry. Take care. Thank you. God bless you. All right, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we're going to talk to Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, who's doing such a great job, by the way, in his freshman year in the Senate, and talk about uh, continuing resolutions and Democrats' free spending instincts. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We bring in Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. Senator, I just want to say, I, I want to talk to you about the continuing resolution and all the Democratic spending plans. But I just want to say, so this is your first term in the Senate. You're two years into it. You have become a very strong force for conservative principles. And you come on our TV show, we get tr- tremendous feedback. I mean, a lot of people are talking about it. You've made your mark, sir. You've made your mark, and I want to congratulate you for it. Well, thank you, Larry. You know, I didn't, I didn't do run for this job to go and run our country in the ground. And people in Alabama want us to quit spending. And, you know, the CR was, you know, it's just a, it's a standard you know, for us just continue to spend, you know, the current levels uh, that our government and the Congress has passed. But uh, now, you know, the Democrats use it for a, basically for a checkbook. And uh, they put all these other things on there. Ukraine, you know, I'll say this, Larry, I've been to Ukraine and India, I've been all over the Indo-Pacific in the last two years, and I'm all for Ukraine. And, and but NATO needs to step up. And it seems like we're the only one doing anything. And uh, I'm forgiving them one, two billion a month, but not. I voted against the $40 billion. I voted against this 
12 or 13B and that we're funding their government. I mean, we, they're actually the 51st state in the United States of America. Mm. And uh, we got all kind of problems, Larry. We, and, you know, the American people are struggling and the Democrats don't, I, I, they don't, either they recognize it or they just don't care. Inflation is it's much more than eight, nine percent here in Alabama. It is way out of control. We continue to spend money, Larry. You know this. We continue to spend it. It's just going to be that much harder to get it back into, into the balance. And uh, right now it is way out of control. Senator, just to quickly on that, your point about NATO, um, are they doing are they doing their fair share? Are they ponying up the kind of money they should be ponying up? Well, they say they're putting more money in their defense budget. Uh, we can't get a number. I've been to all kind of hearings. We can't get a true number of what's going in, what's going out. But I'm going to tell you, Larry, uh, the reason our dollar is so high, because there's no, there's nowhere to put your money other than the United States of America. Mm. Uh, all of Europe is, is underwater. Mm. Uh, I've, I've been to several countries and talked to Senate leaders in other countries, and, and uh, you think we're in trouble. Uh, these people are really struggling. Uh, most say that we've only got two to three months left of natural gas and oil for a cold, cold winter coming up with, mm. and with this Russia uh, problem going on. So uh, I can't tell you. Uh, they won't, I'm on armed services. I'm, I'm on all these committees. You can't get a, uh, an answer, but you know they're not paying what they need to. Mm. Uh, they keep. You can say what you want. It's kind of like the Democrats. They can say what they want, but the truth's not there. And I'd just like to see the true number. But uh, the American taxpayer is footing this bill and it is going to get higher and higher. It's not going to stop. Uh, the problem is, what's the end game here? I, I, we keep asking, you know, this administration, what is the end game here? Give us a give us a game plan to end this thing. Somebody needs to do a little diplomacy. Uh, I, I know Putin's crazy, uh, he, but he's crazy, but he's smart. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows what happened with this uh, the pipeline. Uh, you know, it's it, it, it's a scary world, Larry. And it's a, as long as you and I have been around, this is probably as dangerous a world overall than you and I have ever seen. Yes, yes, I would I I would agree with that. At, at least going going back to the to the tough part of the Cold War in the seventies and the eighties, I would agree with that. Senator Tuberville, you voted against the continuing resolution, which I think was an act of courage. Now, that damn thing's only going to be till the middle of December. So the cavalry's coming, Republicans are going to take Congress, and you're going to get lame duck liberal Democrats spending their keister. I mean, isn't that – that was the pathetic part about the CR. To the middle of December, really? They're not, they're not going to be in power come January 3rd. So what do you think is going to happen here? Larry, no matter what happens in the election, you're going to see uh, – probably from about 10th or 11th of November all the way up to Christmas and even the first of the year, the Democrats are going to spend, spend, spend. You'll mm-hmm. see another reconciliation. Uh, you'll see more spending. They don't want people working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just the opposite of what, what what we need to be doing. We have to get people back to work, Larry. That Joe Biden has doubled the food stamps, yeah. uh, and he's going to continue to do that. And uh, all they want to do is they want power and control, get their vote. And they want to make things look like it's good right now for for a certain group of people in this country to get them uh, to vote uneducated, uh, you know, for the Democrats. But I'm I'm telling people right now, um, you know, I'm a football coach 40 years, but I've been out in the public and this is the worst I've ever seen it. And if we don't make an about face on this socialism charge, Mm. uh, I don't know whether we can gain it back in the next two years, even if we get 
control of the Senate and in the House, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with Biden. Mm-hmm. Biden is taking his orders. As I heard y'all talk earlier, you know, he'll say one thing. The staff will say another. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's just it's I, I hate to see this country go like this. I've got kids and and, uh, you know, I don't have the same uh, country that you and I have. But uh, these people have a total different idea how to run a country. They want power. And uh, if we don't get uh, prosperous and get growth back, uh, and there is no growth, Larry. There's zero growth. Mm. There's declining growth mm. in this country, and you 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 uh, you know as well as I do. Mm. When you get the ten year almost four percent, yep, and you get inflation around ten percent, yep, that doesn't jive. No. That's not going to work. No, that's that's right. It's got recession painted all over it. You know, you mentioned food stamps. They want to double food stamps, but Senator Tuberville, no work requirements, no <laughs> workfare. All these uh, so-called small entitlements, welfare, food stamps, housing subsidies, child subsidies, they're throwing this in, no workfare, so we are paying people not to work, and we are damaging the soul of America in the process. Yeah, all our moral values. Uh, This country was built on the backs of hardworking people. And now this government, this administration, wants just the opposite. They want government, big government, to take over, control everything, and give you an opportunity to sit at home. Or even if you want the opportunity, this country still has the opportunity to go out and do whatever you want. But, uh, you know, they want to play Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And uh, Santa Claus usually wins out when it comes to comes to money and subsidies. And, you know, nobody has to pay their rent. Uh, don't You don't, don't worry about paying your school loan off uh you know we'll give you food stamps uh, it's you know the average family now four if you wanted to you can make a hundred thousand dollars in in government yep. subsidies yep. and why would you work yep. uh, the incentive's not there larry senator tuberville terrific work sir i know you're busy today but we thank you for giving us some time and we will talk soon folks i'm larry kudlow we're going to take a quick break on the other side of the break is the great bill o'reilly who has a new book out I'm Cudlow. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Cudlow here. Somebody who really needs no introduction, but we will. Bill O'Reilly, the great O'Reilly, former anchor of the O'Reilly Factor, host of the O'Reilly Update, syndicated radio here on WABC. And um, he's got another killing book. It says here the 12th in the Killing series, Killing the Legends, The Lethal Danger of Celebrity. So, Bill, thank you for giving us some time. I'm sure this thing's going to shoot up to the top of the bestseller list, as always. I've read, you know, I think I've read every one. I really do. question is, why? Well, I appreciate that, you know, and I know how busy you are. You know, this is, we've had 18 number one bestsellers. We hope that Killing the Legends will make it 19. Um, different book. Yeah, that's what I was uh, going to ask. That's why yeah. this one? Why this one? Because social history is largely ignored by historians. They're kind of snobby. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I'm talking to them, I go, yeah, Elvis and John Lennon and Muhammad Ali all changed the way Americans live in a historical way. And they go, well, what about Millard Fillmore? And I go, oh, we can get to Millard later. Um, everybody knows Elvis and Lennon and Ali, but they don't know, A, how they influenced American culture, and B, that their uh, personas were destroyed, and I mean that literally, by their fame. And all three were betrayed. And it's a it's an amazing historical story. Mm. 
So uh, you and I are contemporaries. I mean, we were around uh, in the '60s, right? You were you yes. were bopping yes. around, right? Yes. yes, sir. Yes, sir. I was in college okay. in the '60s. Look, I'm so old, but I I didn't even know Millard Fillmore. He's one of the few I missed. <laughs> yeah, Millard was a president. Uh, he didn't get a lot done, but he's there. I have a, actually a signed picture of Millard. But anyway, uh, in the '50s, uh, after World War II. Dwight Eisenhower president, we were a conformist country. Everybody looked the same, sound the same. TV was just coming in. Everybody watched Milton Berle or whatever it may be, Ed Sullivan show. All of a sudden, out of Tupelo, Mississippi, comes a teenager, recently graduated high school, but certainly not sophisticated, had no connections. And he gets a guest shot on Ed Sullivan. And in six minutes, he crashes the entire American culture. Mm by singing Hound Dog and writhing around. <laughs> yes, and right. the next day, pastors are saying that Elvis Presley is an agent of Satan. Oh. Parents are telling their young boys, you can't slick your hair back, wear a leather jacket, sneer at me. <laughs> and the whole culture changes. Rock and roll comes in, rebellion comes in. Uh, and that was because of one man. Elvis Presley. What an amazing historical achievement. Then the Beatles show up in 64, from 64 to 69, American culture changes again dramatically, sex, drugs, rock and roll, which is what we have now. Hmm. The Beatles were the spear point on that. Magical Mystery Tour, Sgt. Pepper. At the same time, Muhammad Ali is changing the face of dissent in America by refusing to go to Vietnam and be inducted into the armed forces and by bringing civil rights to a, to a people who were desperately looking for a hero, African-Americans. All of this is going on at the same time. Mm. It's an incredible historical story. And then you combine it with the unbelievable personal story of these three and you have killing the legends. Mm. All of them fell prey to drugs. And you talk about the managers. Uh, I, you know what? I want to tell you. One, I read this book uh, coming home from California last night. Uh, so I went through it. I do not like this, uh, what her name is, Yoko Ono. I think she was a bad player. I don't, and I think she hated this country. I don't know John Lennon. I mean, the, I loved the Beatles when the Beatles were the Beatles. But the, she, I see her as evil. Uh, Yoko Ono, evil, and she wrecked John I didn't, Lennon. Uh, yeah, I didn't see it that way. Um, number one, Muhammad Ali never took drugs. Presley killed himself on drugs. Had yeah. to know he was doing it. Had to be self-destructive. He basically said, I give up. I want to check out. Mm. And he killed himself. Mm. Lennon, and not many people know this, uh, changed his personality 180 degrees when he met Yoko Ono. But Ono didn't exploit him financially as uh, Tom Parker exploited Elvis and Herbert Muhammad for the Nation of Islam exploited Muhammad Ali. But what uh, Yoko Ono did was isolate Lenin, who was once a gregarious guy. He, he liked uh, interacting with people. And then all of a sudden, he's a hermit in the uh, apartment building in Dakota in Manhattan, where Yoko Ono lives to this day. In that period of isolation, he becomes a heroin addict, mm -hmm. Lenin. Mm -hmm. And that's what broke up the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And people don't know that. 
Now, I don't know the extent of the interaction between Lennon and Ono. Ono did, was a heroin user as well. Was he addicted? I don't know. Lennon kicked it, mm. but it, it certainly changed everything in his life. And you got to say, this guy and Elvis, too, on top of the world, the most famous people in the world, they have everything, everything, yet it crushed them. The culture revolution that you're describing, it does live on to this day, and it hurt this country, and it still hurts this country. All of this has hurt America. I don't know that we have recovered from it yet. I suspect we have not recovered from it yet. But it culturally well, was certainly, not good. Not yeah. good. Not good. Freedom, do you anything you want. Sorry, go ahead. Right. Please. When you have a traditional society, it is much easier to have a cohesive country. Japan is the best example of that today. Mm. Okay? Mm. When you have a country that's fractured, into do your own thing, the me generation, where's mine, it's all about me, and that's where we are today. The United States is, is today, okay? Then it, it makes it much harder for a nation to function in an uh, efficient way. So you're absolutely right. I don't think the rock and roll culture that Presley ushered in damaged the fabric of our nation because I was quickly – accepted as entertainment. Certainly the 60s, the Vietnam era, damaged us. Ali hooking up with a black nationalist group, the Nation of Islam, and you know who heads that now, don't you, Larry? No. Louis Farrakhan. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, okay, Farrakhan. Okay, so that tells you. But Ali himself didn't hate whitey. He, He wasn't a hater. But he surrendered to them, Mm. and they killed him in the sense that they made him fight when he never should have been fighting. Muhammad Ali was almost killed in the thriller in Manila fighting Mm. Joe Frazier, Mm. and Frazier was almost blinded in that fight. Mm. That's some of the best writing I've ever done in that section of Killing the Legends, Mm. where I go into that fight. And. Dr. Ferdy Pacheco, who is uh, the physician that was overseeing Muhammad Ali, told Ali and Herbert Muhammad, the Nation of Islam, you got to keep this guy out of the ring for a year. It took him two weeks to be able to walk, Ali. Mm. He couldn't leave the Philippines. Mm. Four months later, guess he's in the ring. So I, when you read this, your, your jaw like goes, ah. But it happened. And if it can happen to those people, it can happen to any famous person, and it has. The list is legion of people who have gone down. And I'll submit to you that one of the reasons we don't have great leadership in this country is because a lot of bright, honest people do not want to go into the political arena because they know they're going to get their throat tore out. Mm. And the burden of, of fame and power influences the family members. And we, we go through that in Killing the Legends, how their, all their family members were harmed grievously. Because of their fame. Well, that's, um, yes, absolutely. Look, I don't, this is not a political book, uh, but I see a political, there is a political lens here with this um, free spirit, do anything, money, drugs, sex, wreck your family, 
there's no there's no God here. There's no religion here. There's no values here in these people. Now, I, th- I think Elvis, I don't know. I have some sympathy for the Elvis story, even though his stupid manager ruined his life. But I didn't have much sympathy. Ali, I used to watch him. He was a very brilliant fighter in his early days. But, you know, Bill, I, th- this is a cultural disintegration. And I think the left in this country continues to hang on to that and, and even even furthers it, even extends it. There's just no religious background. We were talking about this earlier. I was out in California getting this Bill Buckley Award, and we talked about it out there. You can't have a healthy society without some religion and some belief in your God. I'm not proposing a specific religion, but, but part of the book, running through this book, there's no grounding, there's no spiritual grounding for any of these people. It's interesting because um, I see it the way you see it, but I don't put a religion on it. I put a code of morality on it, Mm. right and wrong. Right. Good. So in the 50s, everybody will, okay, this is the Ten Commandments, sir. That's what we do. That's what we do. Mm. Um, Nation overwhelmingly Christian. This is stealing is wrong. Okay? Mm. Lying is wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. Taking narcotics, intoxicating yourself—that's wrong, and that was widely accepted. That's what disappeared. That, that's what broke down. Now nothing's wrong. No judgment. Right. Okay. It's a totally secular situation, and when you have that, the weaker of the people go down. Mm. So Presley, he—he he was religious in the sense that he believed in God, but he didn't practice any religion, didn't have any discipline in that area. Ali. Uh, uh, you know, was a Muslim, but he's married four times, and he's running around doing whatever he wants to do. I, I don't know how that goes into the Koran, but uh, and Lenin was an atheist. Yeah, Lenin didn't have any of that. Okay, so none of them understood their circumstance. That that that's a theme of killing the legends. They didn't understand what was happening to them, and they were in pain. And so they said to other people, "You take my life. You run my life." That's what John Lennon did with Yoko Ono. Yeah. So you run it, whatever you say will do. You do that, any human being does that, you're finished. You're going down. I think that's a great message from this book, right there, what you just said. I think that's a great message. And you're right about the morality. You're right. Anyway, folks, the great Bill O'Reilly, another great book. It's called Killing the Legends, The Lethal Danger of Celebrity. It's about uh, Muhammad Ali, John Lennon, Elvis Presley, and it's always about Bill O'Reilly. Bill, you just keep knocking these books out, and you're helping all of us. I love reading them. <laughs> I'm addicted to them. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate it very, very much. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk to uh, Joe Concha, media expert. He's got a new book out about what's going wrong in American politics today. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So my great pal Joe Concha, who's a media and politics columnist for The Hill, he's a Fox News contributor. He's a great contributor to The Kudlow Show and its success. And he's got a new book out. And it's got a wonderful title, actually. What a, what's like, what else can I say? Come on, man. The truth about Biden's no good, horrible, very bad presidency and how to return America to greatness. So, so Joe, I'm, I'm reading the book. I've Flew to California and back, so I had plenty of time. I'm reading your book. I read O'Reilly's book. Um, let's do that. Let's do this. 
Okay. How, let's do the how to return America to greatness part, okay? Talk, talk, talk to us about that. You know I'm an optimist, and you know I think the cavalry's coming, whatever that may mean. <laughs> how, do we, how do we return America to greatness? Well, I am the founder, Larry, of the pragmatist party, all right? I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. <laughs> it's just simple pragmatism, right? It's, it's things that I apply in running my own little country here in New Jersey called my household, all right? <laughs> so we return to greatness by doing this simple thing called not spending what you don't have, mm. right? So you don't spend trillions of dollars and then have the audacity to tell the American people, like this president has, that it will actually lower inflation. <laughs> because, you know, my kid ran a lemonade stand a couple of weeks ago, and even he understands in first grade <laughs> that when you inject that much money into the system, that it probably will devalue the dollar and therefore induce Inflation, right? So we, we don't spend what we don't have. I think that that's a good way to start. And, and we once had a balanced budget amendment, you know, what, back in the late 90s. I think we could do it again, right? So, so that's one. Two, if somebody breaks the law, particularly if you do something violent to somebody else, then there isn't something called cashless bail that allows you to go right back out into the street and either hurt or even kill somebody again. You hurt somebody, it's a violent crime, you go to jail for a long time. I think that makes sense because I think that's the way we used to kind of run things in this country, or at least in New York under Giuliani and Bloomberg, and now we see that people are afraid to take the subway, they're afraid to go out at night, they're afraid to allow their kids to go play right out in front of their homes. Uh, because that's how bad things have gotten in a place like New York, for example. So I think that would be another way to return to American greatness. And if you have this thing called the border, right, which separates your country from another country, you make sure that nobody enters unless they want to go through a legal process. I think that's pretty fair. We do those three things, and oh, by the way, we tell parents exactly what curriculums we're teaching our children. So the aforementioned first grader that I have, Liam, he's not being taught about sexual orientation and gender identification when he just turned seven years old because he has no idea what it means anyway. And we take the extremism out of education. We teach basic blocking and tackling around not just math and science and reading, but how to manage credit, for example, when you get into high school. What is a mortgage? You know, things that prepare people for life. Mm. And I think we could be back to greatness. And that isn't all that unreasonable, now, is it? No. It, you know, I've said this many times that that uh, Americans are common sense people. Yeah. Uh, they're very practical minded. And when they see things not working or broken, they will throw them out. I mean, that's the way in some sense I'm overgeneralizing. But in some sense, I think that's one of the underlying themes of this election. This progressive utopia, left-wing, blah, blah, socialist, central planning, whatever, <laughs> cultural decline, teaching seven-year-olds what they shouldn't be hearing. Uh, they don't want it. Americans don't want it. I may be wrong here, and the cavalry may not come the way I think it will, but I think you're right about the common-sense, uh, practical-minded party. That's what people want. Give me something that works. Right now, nothing's working. Nothing's working, and you have a media that continues to focus solely on the guy who you used to work for, who left office 21 months ago. <laughs> the myopia is overwhelming because they know if they actually scrutinize the current president, then they'd have to talk about 40-year high inflation. They'd have to talk about the crime that we just talked about. They'd have to talk about the fentanyl crisis that's killing an average of 300 Americans per day. They would have to talk about the crisis at the U.S. southern border and education like we just talked about. All these things that are so important to the American people should be front and center on every newscast on a nightly basis 
on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post and in the op-ed sections. But instead, and I'll give you the best example of this, it's all about Trump. And I know this because there are, Larry, over the next – starting with last week all the way up to the midterms, 15 books coming out on Donald Trump. You know how many are coming out? This is a punchline, though. You know how many are coming out on Joe Biden? One. And you're literally talking to the author right now. Uh, is that amazing? No one wants to write about this president, but uh, Trump, he's the threat. Maggie Haberman's writing a book, and it's going to be out next month, and it's going to be awesome. Oh, my God, Maggie, I thought you were supposed to hold the powerful accountable without fear or favor to party, but instead all these White House correspondents and reporters – Trump. You know why? Because they could profit off it. And, and Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel and CBS This Morning isn't going to book you. I've learned this, trust me, yeah. if you write a bad book about Joe Biden. And it's not even a bad book. It's truthful. It breaks down exactly how he got here and where we're at and, and why he is the worst president of our lifetimes. You know, one of your points is that um, however bumbling and stumbling and cogn- cognitively disabled Biden may be, the fact is uh, – his policies are always the progressives, the central planners, the liberals, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he's the guy. Look, I have served two presidents in my time, and major decisions are always signed off by the president. Okay? Correct. I mean, he the buck stops there. Uh, you, I mean, I just saw this so many times in, in, in my experience. And Biden has gone along with this. I mean, that's sort of like – the story isn't whatever, however disabled he may be. The fact is he's doing this. He signs off on this. And yet no one wants to give him that blame or the responsibility in that blame. Nobody. And these, Larry, you're, yeah. you're Look, you, you cover media. I know you're doing the politics, too. But the media is, the I, in some sense, the worst part of this story. They will not cover the problems and failures that we're suffering right now. They just won't. Precisely. And then the excuse that, well, Biden, he's approaching 80 and, you know, he's starting to lose it. No, he's always been a far left ideologue. I, I, he was sold as a moderate. And I kept hearing this during the 2020 election. I go, no, he isn't. Mm. He was the main backer behind Obamacare, which was the biggest expansion of government we have seen in our lifetimes. Mm. And he said it was a big effing deal. And he was very happy about that. And now is he governing like a moderate? No, of course not. And, and, and for people to say, well, he's handled by other people. No, you're right. This is about Biden and, and what he's always wanted to do if he had the power. When he was a senator, he was one of 100. That's not a lot of power. You're a vice president. It's a symbolic sort of position. You don't have a lot of power. Now that he has power, you see exactly where he wants to take the country on energy, for example, right? To to shut down all these leases or not sign off on these leases in the Gulf and off of Alaska and to cut down the Keystone Pipeline on day one. Mm. Uh, You know, again, this is who he always wanted to shape the country in the direction it's going in. And now 86% of, of Americans, according to Gallup, thinks that the country's going in the wrong direction. So his instincts have always been wrong, and now it's playing out in real time, and we're suffering for it, Larry. Do you think, Joe Concha, do you think that um, the attempt to make Trump the issue in this election will work? It will not, ultimately, because while people can read the papers, and like like we talked about, they they only focus on Trump, uh, what they're reading right now, the American people, is their 401ks. And I looked at mine yesterday, and I was horrified what what I have lost over the past year, right, in in, in my savings. I invest for for, for the future, not so much like a day trading sort sort of situation. So they see their 401ks. They don't see their wages going up. And then when they go to the grocery store, they're saying, I'm paying 
basically twice uh, uh, as much as what I did just a couple of years ago. Uh, so they, they see all these things. And then, like we talked about with crime, they don't feel as safe and they see what their kids are being taught. And that's what they're seeing. So the, the news media can hammer home Trump all they want. In the end, Americans know what they feel and ultimately they vote with their wallets and if they feel safe. And that's why I do think the cavalry is coming in November. Yeah. This Trump stuff, it didn't work in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin and uh, Terry McCall. I, look, I think you're right. Uh, anyway, it's a good read. Folks, uh, again, Joe Concha, come on, man. The truth about Biden's no good, horrible, very bad presidency and how to return America to greatest. It's a good read. It's a quick read. Joe, thanks a lot, and thanks for helping us on the show the way you do. Folks, we're going to take a little bit of break, then do some stock market economic work on the other side. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. Much more to come. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you as always. And please join us during the week on Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't get there at four, text your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. It's not too hard. You can get us live streaming on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com. It runs all across the country, around the world, and throughout the solar system. So we do a good job there. So let's do some stock market and economic work. Not good. I guess that's the best way to say it. Uh, Stocks, God, they're off. Dow's off 500 points yesterday, down 865 for the week. The S&P 500 is now down 25% year-to-date, so we're in bear market territory. Uh, the S&P lost, let's see, 3.8% in the third quarter, so things aren't looking too good on that side. Lael Brainerd, kind of the dovish person on the Fed, but even she's still talking tough, restrictive policies. And we had um, an inflation report that was also not good. Core inflation is proving to be very sticky and difficult, although I will say a lot of uh, forward-looking indicators on inflation look a lot better, strong dollar, weak commodity prices. Anyway, let's talk to our experts about this whole story. David Bonson, who's the founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group, and he's the author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, and uh, he puts out the DividendCafe.com every day. And John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. Uh, Welcome, gentlemen. Um, David Bonson, my brother, bless your heart for what you did at the Buckley Dinner. Bless your heart for that. I will never forget it. Never, never, never. Anyway, um, David, let me start with you. The market looks bad what's your thinking about it how long do you think this decline is going to last what are the underpinnings of the market look like how do you see things right now well i think that it's the obvious first that uh there isn't anything that is going real well in markets it's bonds and stocks three quarters in a row of stocks and bonds being negative, and that's just so unbelievably rare. Even in periods where you have multiple, multiple quarters of the stock market being down for bonds, which are historically more reverse correlated, 
to be down as well. Um, it makes it very tough for asset allocators. You know, people are trying to do the right thing and diversify. And uh, what's going on on one side is going down and what's going on on the other side is going down. But, Larry, here's the thing I'd say. Um, the beginning of the year, the, uh, all the way through, let's say, the summer, it was the stuff that deserved to go down getting hit the most, overpriced tech, a lot of the COVID hot stuff, your crypto stuff, you know, more frothy speculation. What happened, and it wasn't just, it wasn't third quarter. It was just the last few weeks. Mm. Just the last few weeks, value got hit, dividends got hit, energy got hit. So the winners of the year finally caught up. And that's generally what you see in later innings of a bear market, mm. that the good stuff goes down with the bad stuff. So I don't know if we're one week away or six months away. We're nine months in. The average bear market, and we've had 13 of them since World War II, the average is a year. Mm. And we're about, you know, three quarters of the way there on the average. So uh, this is, uh, there's a lot of repricing that had to take place, but that dollar will have to come down and the bond yields will have to come down before stocks can really start to breathe a little. Yeah, interesting point on the rates. Um, your 10-year note is up to 383, up 14 basis points for the week. Of course, the three-month T-bill, which is tracking the Fed funds rate, three and a quarter, it is interesting. The curve is badly inverted, but not three months. Three months, the only thing is still positive curve. But the two years, that I'll call it four and a quarter, and the five years at four. So they're all inverted relative to the 10-year. Um, let's see. I want to do some. Yeah, well, consumer, consumer spending was okay, up three-tenths. But um, disposable income uh, keeps falling. John Carney, inflation, very sticky. Core inflation actually creeping up in the report that came out yesterday. What do you make of that, John? I think that this was a much worse than expected inflation report, not just because of core, but if you look at the things we've talked about before, median inflation is going up. I was just looking at the Dallas uh, Fed's trimmed mean PC inflation. Mm. This thing is rocketing higher. 12-month uh, 12 12 trimmed mean went from 4.5 to 4.7. The one-month annualized went from 3.7 in July. So, you know, that was pretty low. It was much lower than we've been having, all the way up to 6% again. Mm. So this is, you know, really the underlying inflationary pressures, it's actually a lot like what David was just saying about stocks, where at first it was the stuff that, you know, had to go down, went down. The stuff that was is was easily repriced, we saw a lot of inflation there. Now we're seeing the inflation spread out to everything. And that's why we're seeing it in these average inflation numbers where you get whether it's median or trimmed mean. And that's really telling you that inflate and the other thing we're seeing is it's moving over into services very quickly. So, and services inflation tends to be more persistent than goods inflation. So what this tells us is we're going to be stuck with high inflation for longer. And I think that's really what's hitting the stock market right now. And, John, that puts the pressure on the Fed. The Fed is going to be uh, tougher probably than anybody thinks in the months ahead. That's right. I think 50 basis points is off the table now for November. I think they're at least doing 75 this report, yesterday's report on PCE, 
uh, I think, sealed it. They're going to do uh, in November 75 again. And if we get bad CPI numbers uh, in the next couple of weeks, it may push them up to do 100. I know they don't want to do that, but they, they you know, we've had a serious, you know, this is a really steep uh, slope that they've gone up on the Fed funds rate. And yet it is really not showing any progress when it comes to core inflation. Yeah. My view was uh, always that they should have done hundreds, just get it out of the way, rip the Band-Aid off. I mean, you know, David Bunsen, you see the the so-called market-based indicators, the leading indicators of inflation are definitely coming down. Uh, It's a very clear trend. Uh, I watched the CRB futures. Um, That's been making another leg down. Of course, the dollar is... Uh, very, very strong. But um, the actual inflation reports, and look, the Fed institutionally has to deal with the actual inflation reports. So, um, you know, I think John Carney's got a point. The Fed's going to be tougher, and that's uh, obviously not going to help stocks in the next bunch of months, Dave Bonson. Well, I think the possible, the other side of that is not necessarily a disagreement about the facts, but a disagreement about how it gets priced in markets. Because one could argue, and and candidly, I I pretty much agree with John Carney on most things, and you know I agree with you on virtually everything. But I think that is what's happened, is that the market, everything John just said is what the markets have been pricing. So now I think you end up with uh, risk the other direction because the worst case of Fed tightening may very well be priced in, mm. and any hint of something not as tight as feared could become a rally catalyst. And, and I'll give you an example. I don't believe they're going to go forward with the violence of quantitative tightening that they've been projecting. I don't think they can. I don't think they have prepayments. In in mortgages, they're going to allow them to sell mortgage-backed securities at that level. Mm. And I don't think that the financial system can withstand the um, extraction of liquidity that they've said they'll do. On the Fed fund side, the only thing I'd say is if if we think they're really taking their cues from PCE and CPI reports as opposed to just using those for cover, the problem is that rents – And housing are coming down, even though it hasn't been reflected in the numbers yet. Uh, August had the first national decline of rents in years, Hmm. but we don't see it in PCE for a couple months because of the lag effect. So you think that just to clarify, you think the potential Fed tightening is now priced into stocks? Or, or getting very close. I mean, if it isn't totally priced, it's far more priced than it was. It happened very quickly. This is a really new element in markets. They take bad news and price them in quickly. I mean, this was one of the worst months for stocks that mm. most people will see in a career. Mm. And, and there wasn't really anything that catastrophic fundamentally. But I just think you get no buyers, all sellers, and they price in where the worst scenarios could go pretty quickly. And so, yeah, the Fed the Fed is going to get it higher than we all thought they would at one point. Um, but there is a level at which everyone thinking that uh, Powell is Volcker is going to be revealed to be untrue. He <laughs> cannot handle a severe recession. He can't do it. I know, and he won't get any support from the White House. Um, no. Let's take a quick break and come back and continue this. Dave Bonson from uh, Managing Group, uh, partner of the Bonson Group, John Carney from Breitbart. 
I'm Larry Kudlow. We've got a lot more to talk about on the economy. Uh, take a break. We'll be right back, folks. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks in the economy with David Bonson of the Bonson Group and John Carney of Breitbart News. Uh, John Carney, um, the, is there any whispering going on that you know of? And I'll ask this of both of you, so please weigh in, that the Fed is very concerned about disarray in the bond market with these large rate increases happening. Uh, maybe I should add also the foreign exchange market, the British story. They're all beaten up on Liz Trust for being a supply sider. I think that's she's right and the critics are wrong. Um, but, John, that the Fed might have some kind of emergency meeting, come out with statements about the bond market. Do you hear anything about that? What I've heard is actually the biggest concern being over not necessarily what's going on in the U.S. bond market or in uh, with the U.K. that they're you know the Bank of England can basically handle what's happening there, but with uh, emerging markets that mm. they are, it, the, as weak as the dollar keeps strengthening and you can keep earning a higher and higher uh, return with you know ultra safe assets, it is crushing already emerging markets. On both sides, one they can't sell anything. Who want you know who's going to buy a, you know a risky sovereign debt when you can get U.S. debt and earn a real yield? And they and a lot of countries that have dollar denominated uh, debt are going to have a very hard time getting their hands on enough dollars as the dollar soars like it has. You know, I was surprised to read the story this morning's uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Lael Brainerd who's, you know, always on the left side, dovish side. But she came out and gave a talk, uh, I don't know, yesterday or the day before, that was very tough, very restrictive, saying the Fed's going to stay the course. Um, so that's Lael Brainerd. Take it for what it's worth. Um, David Bonson, I don't know if you've heard anything about emergency meeting by the Fed or emergency statements or worried about the bond market. But, David, let me add one other thing. I was quite surprised to see the GDP tracker from the Atlanta Fed uh, ratcheted up from – this is for the third quarter estimate. Uh, they were at 0.3 percent, call it flat. Uh, now they're at 2 plus 2.6 percent. That's a big number for the third quarter. Uh, kind of comes out of left field. I have not dug into it, but I wondered, uh, you know – if you got a two and a half percent quarter, I would say that would put even more pressure on the Fed for maybe all the wrong reasons I'm saying, but that might even put more pressure on the Fed to be even tougher. Well, of course, if they that would be if they erroneously believe, which I suspect they do, that economic growth yeah. is inflationary, yeah. which it is not, right. um, and does not have to be. But here, here's the thing about that GDP number, and a lot of people politically won't like what I'm about to say. It's because the stuff that was giving the negative GDP before was kind of the weak sauce stuff, inventories and things like that. I'm a supply sider, as is one of the greatest living economists who is the host of this radio show, <laughs> who taught me everything I know about supply side economics. And Larry, I care about non-residential fixed investment. Mm. That's the input to yep. GDP I care about, yep. business investment. Yep. 
that part didn't really go down that much. It wasn't up much either. It was kind of flattish in Q1 and Q2. Mm. The part Atlanta's looking at now is that the inventories are reversed because they're very volatile. But the consumer is still spending because the consumer is able to spend, and inflation's up, so there's a little higher number in the, in the spending. Um, it's, it's a business investment. That's the long-term number I care about. And quarter over quarter, when inventories pull you down, they can pull you back up. And that's what I think you're seeing. Yeah, tr- uh, trade, too. I think oh, trade yeah, that's is right. yeah. another one of yeah. those swing factors. But you're right. Business investment should be the heart of it. Yep. All things production and manufacturing should be the, the heart of it. Um, actually, Mark Skousen tracks this uh, this uh, GO gross output where he looks under the hood at the intermediate and early stages of process, business, basically business to business uh, spending and investing uh, has held up. It has held up. And, you know, on the supply side of the economy, that's good. If only policies, you know, tax and regulatory policies would encourage that instead of discouraging it. But you uh, you guys are not hearing anything yet about some kind of emergency Fed uh, meeting or Fed statement. Is that right? Either of you? I, I, I'm not hearing anything. I don't know if John is. But one, what I'll say real quickly is what John said before, this dollar liquidity shortage, it's the biggest story in the world economically. It's just almost impossible to talk about because it's very complicated um, and it's not merely an emerging market story. It's fascinating. Emerging markets are down 27, and the S&P is down 25. Mm. Normally, with Fed tightening, emerging markets should be down double what the S&P is. Um, and so, but yeah, the dollar shortage is a major story worldwide. So, John, you're I've not. Got, I've got a little bit of hopefulness. I wanted to inject because we sound so dire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what I what I wanted to say was that look, we I was very down on the stock market until very recently. I thought we had priced in a lot of the thing, you know, the, the the rate hikes, but we hadn't priced in the idea of a much slower growth or even a recession next year. But now it looks like we're we, we're pretty close to that. And historically, uh, over the past 140 years. Bear markets last 289 days. Huh. That would put us at October 19th, 2022. Huh. The 35th anniversary of Black Monday would be the <laughs> end of the black market or the end of the bear market. Wow. And you, so, ele- you know, there's hope. And wait, and the election comes 10 days later and the cavalry is coming. Indeed. So <laughs> we're, we're, we could be setting up for, you know, Something coming up, you know, of course, history is, you know, as we always say, right, the past performance, you know, cannot predict future performance. But look, history, if it means anything, it would say, I mean, it would be it would be wonderful poetry for the market to, you know, end the bear market on October 19th. I love that. I love that. And I love the fact that I think Congress is going to change hands and at least the bad stuff. From all this left-wing progressivism might be stopped. So that's very cool. David, uh, politics in the stock market, what do you think? Yeah, you know, there is this little fact a lot of people in my business point out all the time. You know how many negative years we've had in the market in the third year of a presidential administration after the midterm? Mm -hmm. None. 
Haven't, mm. hasn't happened. Huh. Uh, it, it, it's a pretty weird statistic. It's one of those kind of Joe DiMaggio records that doesn't ever seem <laughs> to get broken. Um, and a lot of it is generally believed to be because in the second year, you know, they do policies that they can uh, have time to come back from. And in the third year, they have to start ramping up. This, this administration doesn't care about that. They're not going to do anything supply side. They're not going to deregulate. They're obviously not going to cut taxes. Uh, but is the Fed going to be done with all their tightening? You know, I've believed that for my whole career, mm. that politics is second and monetary policy is first yeah. when it comes to markets. Uh, and all both of those things are after earnings. Earnings are the mother's milk. Yes. And, and, and so that's the issue that we have to look at is have corporate earnings been adjusted downward enough right. yet? I don't think they necessarily have, but valuations have come down a lot. All right. Profits are the mother's milk of stocks. We will watch the earnings reports in the weeks ahead. David Bonson, thank you. John Carney, thank you. Folks, we're going to uh, next uh, up is going to be Liz Peake and Steve Moore. We're going to talk some money and some politics because you know what? The cavalry is coming. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Money and politics. We got Liz Peake. Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist. We've got Steve Moore, FreedomWorks, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and his book, Govzilla. Steve Moore, nice of you to drop by this weekend. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice of you to drop by. So was, The reason I missed the show last week, I was at the President's Cup in Charlotte, North Carolina, rooting on the Americans to win the golf tournament. And there was it was so loud there, there was nowhere to do the interview. Anyway, no, sorry. That, that's wonderful. I'm glad that you were down there. So a uh, couple of things, <laughs> kids. Um, I want Steve, um, an interesting story um, – Bob Cahaley, uh, who runs the Trafalgar poll, was going through some numbers, and the number w- number one hated Biden policy <laughs> right now is the student loan yeah. cancellation. Yep. Really yep. hot. It's like yep. I, I don't think it's gotten enough. I mean, it's gotten some discussions about policy, but not politics in the midterms. Right. And as we know now, it's being challenged in court uh, by this chap from Indiana uh, who has to pay taxes on his student loan cancellation. uh, And so he has standing. But it is interesting, Steve, student loan cancellations. People are furious about this. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's one of those things that doesn't get picked up in, you know, normal polling when you ask people you're for it or against it and kind of people reflectively if they like Biden, they say I like it. And and so the polls have shown, you know, slight disagreement with the policy but when you look at the intensity of how how angry people mm. are about this and and it just strikes people as fundamentally unfair you know who's the maddest person in america on this uh, larry is uh, my beloved wife uh, Ann Moore, who mm. paid off her student loan when mm. she got a, graduated from UCLA. And she wasn't making a lot of money, you know, when she graduated. And she put money aside, you know, and it was a financial sacrifice to pay that loan off. And she is furious now. Mm-hmm. People are making one hundred fifty dollars and $200,000 a year with graduate degrees are not paying back their loans. So it's just it just sends all the wrong lessons that you don't have to pay your debts. And, you know, Liz, it's stuff like that, undercurrents like that that um, may may have a bigger impact on this election and makes me think that the cavalry is, in fact, coming. <laughs> well, I, I hope that you're right, and I think so, too. 
But it, Steve points to one group that really is angry about this. The other group, of course, is people who haven't been to college, have right, no aspirations right. or expectations mm-hmm. of going to college. And those are people that the Democrat Party used to pretend right. that they care about. Those are the people who are really struggling with inflation. Uh, those are the people, many of whom are losing jobs to people streaming across the southern border. So I don't think Democrats even pretend anymore to go after the working men and women, non-college educated, uh, particularly white, non-college educated uh, working class in America. They don't even pretend. I mean, that is Republican territory. And I think this policy just drives home to so many of them uh, that this is not their party. They have no place in it anymore. So, you know, um, I'm sure you saw it, but um, when I talked about it on the show, I don't know, it's a week ago, Monday now, this uh, Washington Post ABC News poll, which um, took Nate Silver 538, he's got all the swing districts. He gave him the swing districts, anything that's competitive. So they used his definition of swing district, districts, and then they went out and polled. And the results were uh, an eye-opening and jaw-dropping. 21% of the swing districts are leading Republican right now, Steve Moore. Now, that's an astonishing thing. I have not seen other polls uh, cover this ground. Uh, WAPO, ABC News, is not a conservative poll by Mm -hmm. any means, but 21% going Republican. Now, I mean, if if that's true, it's going to be an unbelievable landslide. What you make of that? Well, you're right. If that is true, you, it is going to be a, a, a 1994, 2010 type mm. of election cycle. Mm. And look, it's hard to tell at this point, at this juncture. We still have, what, five, four, five weeks to go. Um, I was looking at, you know, the three big landslide red wave elections in your or my lifetime, Larry, which would, of course, have been 1980, mm. right, 1994 and 2010, when any Democrat with a D next to their name was in very, very serious jeopardy and Republicans ended up with a huge tide winning almost every race. And uh, it could happen. It could happen this time. And people are getting angry when you look at the financial meltdown that's happening. It feels like the wheels are coming off the economy. You know, what is the reason to vote for Democrats at this point? You know, Liz, I know that Joe Biden doesn't pay any attention to the stock market and he mocks (laughs) the stock market. Okay, but the stock market is sinking very badly. Um, we just talked about it with Dave Bonson and John Carney in the last segment. A lot of people, I mean, according to pollsters, uh, people make up their minds in September. Yeah, they've yep. already. St- I think some places they've started early voting. Liz, the stock market is killing people, and we looked at this. The latest Gallup. I know you. You had fifty-five percent. We looked at an updated Gallup poll. Fifty-eight yeah, percent owned shares. <laughs> Uh, yeah. You know, one way or another. And that's a lot of people. I mean, that could be as much as 150 million people, for heaven's sakes. So, But, but I don't think that even measures. I, I use 58. That's, that is the latest Gallup read on this. That doesn't really, though, take into account the overall effect on the mood of the country. Right. And I think, you know, uh, even if you don't own shares, you see yeah. these whopping losses, another 500-point right. drop on Friday, the market, I think, is down 9% in just one month. 
uh, and it affects the mood of the country, and that affects yeah. everything, Larry. I think I think the Fed got wrong the impact of the net wealth accumulation that took place during COVID mm. that really spurred spending. I think they're also maybe getting wrong the fact that as people get poorer, and now as of this month, we also have housing prices going down. So people, whether you own a house or stocks or bonds, you're getting killed, basically. Mm. Uh, and what does that mean? It means you begin uh, to, I mean, who isn't doing this? Sort of sitting around saying, okay, well, we don't really need to add that extension on the house. We mm. don't really need to take that extra vacation. People begin to pull in their horns. And I think what also Biden doesn't pay any attention to, I don't know what he pays attention to, but one thing he ignores at his peril is that the wealthy people in America, and I'm not talking the top 1%, I'm talking, let's say, the top half, the top 58% that own those shares, mm. they account for probably 75% of spending. It's not one for one. I mean, when people begin to feel uh, impacted by a declining stock market, that really lays waste to big job industries like travel and entertainment eating out. I mean, all those things that are discretionary mm -hmm. spending, that's what begins to get torpedoed. And that's, I think, what we're going to begin to see over the next month or two. I also, I think I read that for the first time, uh, national rents are coming down. Rental prices yeah. are coming down, which I like because we're looking for an apartment here in the city. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping the rental prices. Well, they're tied to housing prices. So they went up more than anyone anticipated because of housing prices going up. And now they probably will begin to come down a little bit. Also, I think specific to your situation, New York City, <laughs> you know what? People aren't coming back to New York City yeah. quite yet. Yeah. I mean, the numbers just are not there. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I heard from brokers a month ago or two months ago that everybody's coming back to New York and rental prices are going to go up. The rental market in New York is in complete disarray. Nobody can figure out the pricing. But your point is right. There's no miracle here. The decline of New York City continues. There's no miracle. People are not rushing to come back. And a lot of these brokers uh, are, are mispricing the market. But, Steve Moore, you know, not only 58 percent own stocks, but, you know, people read the headlines and, you know, they even the, the news, the broadcast yeah. networks, they will give you headlines every day. The Dow's going down. The Dow's going down. So I guess my point is it's setting up um, – a very, uh, a very disheartening picture as people go to the polls and vote. And I think that's going to hurt Biden a lot. Yeah, no question about it. And I, I want to correct you on one thing that you said, Larry. You said people make up their minds in September. Yeah. You know, if you look at those big, you know, those big three-wave elections that I talked about, 1980, 1994, and 2010, actually those, those elections with just a few weeks – remember Reagan was only – tied with jimmy carter with two weeks remember with mm. two weeks to go yes and then wow. he had the famous debate against carter and then he ended up winning by what nine or ten percent and winning what 45 states or something so i think these tides tend to come in in the last couple of weeks and that's why if i were a democrat i'd be i'd be wetting my pants right now i mean i think anyone with a democrat d next to their name is extremely vulnerable because people are in a in a foul mood right now they yeah. and, and liz you're spot on it's not even if you don't own stock, it's it's like a temperature gauge of the economy. People yeah. know that when the stock market's crashing, it's going to affect their job. It's going to affect their income. Uh, just a couple of other quick observations, having talked to some of the pollsters myself. Let's not forget that the even bigger issue, according to 
Scott Rasmussen and others, then the economy is still crime. Right. Crime is still yeah. a right. huge yeah. issue. And when you mentioned New York, you know, it, it's just so shameful what has happened to our great cities. It's not just New York. New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, Portland, yep. Seattle, yep. being destroyed by liberal, woke progressivism. Well, I think the summer, you know, the past summer, the Democrats spent hundreds of millions of dollars of negative ads right. in these Senate races. That's right. And, you know, it didn't move the needle. Because uh, wait, 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 where are they getting all that money? <laughs> where is all that money coming from? I mean, I, it's amazing. They're outspending the Republicans like three to one in these Senate races. Yeah, but, but it's also, amazing. But, but Isn't it, that amazing? But, I, uh, Steve, I want to ask you something. I, I, I love the idea that people have not yet made up their minds and stuff. How much, though, has that changed with all these er, early voting dates in some of these yeah, states? Is that, is that a so big deal? That. Well, I don't Yeah, we. It's a great point. And we had a piece in the hotline on this the other day that, that John Fund wrote. I know John appears on your show all the time as well. And he when makes you a don't really show good up. point. <laughs> John makes a great point that, you know, look, Election Day, it's an iconic day in America. People, I feel strong with this. It's people should vote on Election Day. Yes. You got people voting already. They haven't even had debates yet. Yeah. But I think that makes that whole uh, idea that everything can happen in two weeks a little less credible, right? I mean, maybe it's four weeks, maybe it's six weeks. I don't know. But I worry that as you – what really is infuriating is how many Democrats are refusing to debate until a lot of mail-in votes are already counted (laughs) and and accepted. And I don't blame them because – you saw with Glenn Youngkin's campaign that one mistake by Terry McAuliffe, and he was gone. Mm. Uh, so, well, you, know, you know, Liz, your point is really important because, look, if it hadn't been for early voting, there's no question Trump would have won the election. It was the early voting that really killed him, and the people who made up their mind at the end voted for Trump, you know, the people who yeah. had been undecided. So I think you make a good point. And, and look, I think I just feel strongly, uh, Larry, unless you have some reason, you know, you need an absentee ballot, why can't people vote on Election Day? Yeah, no, no, I totally agree with that. That was in the Trump election reform bill that never got anywhere. He's always argued that. I think he's completely right. But the point I was thinking about before is after spending all this money on negative ads, really in these close Senate races, you know, Arizona, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Uh, Georgia, and so forth, Pennsylvania, the needle didn't move. All this mm-hmm. stuff, you know, and and the the flash flare up about abortion, the needle really hasn't moved, and you're still inside two three points, all these races. So that's yeah, jet- I saw. Go ahead. Sorry, go no, ahead. no I, I saw. I just saw a new Trafalgar poll on Pennsylvania, and Fetterman is up by two, which I think is, you know, within the margin of error yeah. probably, uh, and definitely an improvement for Doctor Oz, right? I mean, look, Fetterman doesn't want to debate. If he debates, yeah. people are going to see the real Fetterman. He's a crazy person. He's a crazy person. His, exactly. I mean, he just is. The stuff he's in favor of is his action. Once they see that, and I don't know, I, I think that we're moving in the right direction. Larry, and then take a quick break. We come back and want to talk about Florida and how Governor DeSantis is handling Florida and how Joe Biden is uh, once again politicizing the terrible, terrible Florida hurricanes. We're talking to Liz Peak, Fox News, uh, syndicated columnist Steve Moore. Committee to Unleash Prosperity and Freedom Works. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. 
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity and his book, Godzilla. Uh, so let me just pull this up on my phone. Kamala Harris rides again, okay? Twitter hammered, uh, this is from Fox, uh, Fox News website. Twitter hammered Vice President Kamala Harris for a recent speech in which she des- in which she described that federal Hurricane Ian relief would be based on equity and prioritize people in quote communities of color. All right. Now I want to get your take on DeSantis, but first, what is this? This is the worst thing of equity. Not the rest of people, mind you. Just the equity and communities of color. That is disgusting. That is disgusting, Liz Peek. That infuriates uh, me. That is that yeah. is racism itself. Well, isn't it also illegal? I mean, how can that really be any metrics for which to dispense federal funds in the case of an emergency, Larry? I mean, couldn't you also, by the same logic, and maybe they did some of this during COVID, say, well, only black people are going to get these medications or only black people are going to be able to access these programs. They've tried in some of those, and they were, I think, shot down. Uh, the farmers comes to mind, right? Black farmers were supposed to get uh, mm-hmm. specific yep. Yep. favoritism or whatever. Uh, so I don't understand this. I, I think it's the kind of thing that just immediately makes everyone's blood boil. Uh, I would hope even people in those communities, because they must recognize that everyone is in this together. Um, so I, I share your anger. I just hope that something like this really just doesn't stand up. Steve, um, taking that, uh, how has DeSantis, I mean, I've watched some of his press conferences. He seems to be all over it. Now, I don't, by the way, mean to uh, ignore the South Carolina because the hurricane hit South Carolina pretty hard, too. Mm-hmm. But in Florida, uh, I liked the way DeSantis was on top of things and his wife and quoting numbers and being all over the place. Uh, Biden wouldn't talk to him about relief, but then he finally did talk to him about relief. I mean, it mm-hmm. seems like uh, Governor DeSantis is on top of this. This is going to be a big plus for his uh, governorship, for sure, and maybe his national ambitions. Yeah, he's in charge. He's done a great job, no question about it. Now, now I have to say, um, FEMA's done a great job. I think the Coast Guard has done a great job. Uh, so it's been, uh, I think it's been a highly professional government response. And I don't normally say that very often. Mm. Uh, but I don't. I just don't understand the reason for trying to politicize a, a disaster like this. I mean, disgusting. You know, if well, you... I do. I do. Ron DeSantis is a real threat for the Democrats. I mean, That's true. He has been a rising star, an incredibly competent individual who's run a great state, is popular in his state, and has an amazing CV. His history mm-hmm. is full of you know, captain of this and leader on that and so forth. This guy's the real deal. And I think uh, Democrats are scared to death he'll be the 2024 candidate uh, and that they have absolutely nothing bad, good, you know, bad to say about him. They are so hoping, and I hate to say this, but I think they are so hoping he flops on this hurricane. I was watching, I was scrolling through the channels and Fox was carrying his his press conference early on Mm -hmm. and Fox Business was. Guess what? CNN and MSNBC 
were both gone to yeah. reporters who appeared <laughs> to be in concrete hovels somewhere where they, there wasn't even wind blowing. I mean, it was so mm-hmm. stupid. Or they were talking to Democrat mayors uh, of the towns that were being impacted, the cities, uh, in anything but give DeSantis coverage. So I don't think it's a figment of your imagination, Larry, that A, he's doing well, and B, boy, the mainstream media does not want to show it. No, I think most of them during the hurricane were covering the January 6th committee. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Or the Supreme Court decision on abortion. No, I mean, that's really what it is. But this idea of equity and communities of color, um, you all the spending uh, plans, Steve Moore, you go through all of this Democratic federal spending. Every one of them has priorities. Yeah. It all talks about equity, you know, and communities of color and diversity. Uh, no matter what the assistance is, including the, you know, uh, Green New Deal assistance, that's all they talk about. So what Harris is doing is just more of the same. And this is, you know, the progressive dream, the progressive utopia. Everything is free. You don't pay back your student loans. And we're going to give all our money to people of color. Mm-hmm. Never mind anybody else. I mean, this is disgusting stuff. Americans aren't going to buy this. They, this is not America, what they're doing. Well put. And, and, you know, you're right. Every piece of legislation, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act or the yes, Recovery Act, obviously, they're, they're, they're obsessed with three issues, Larry. Race, uh, inequality, and climate change. Right. So, and then you read right. these pieces of legislation. There's nothing about prosperity. There's nothing about growth. Right. There's nothing about freedom. There's nothing about free enterprise. <laughs> you know, it's just basically it, it's a hyper obsession. And I don't believe that's where the American people are. <laughs> they yeah. want freedom. They want prosperity. They want higher pay. They want jobs. And uh, Biden is not there. Yeah. Amy, Amy Klobuchar, Amy, Amy Klobuchar, Minnesota, telling us, you know, votes for the uh, Inflation Reduction Act will end hurricanes. It's fabulous stuff. <laughs> Liz Peak so. and Steve. Yeah, me too. Liz Peak and Steve Moore. Thank you, folks. I'm Larry Thank Kudlow. You. Thanks for listening. We will be back next weekend. <laughs>